Lux, uh, should we go around the room and just do like a little minor introductions before we uh, before we get going? What's so the difference ready. between a minor introduction and a major introduction? Ryan, you could major introduction when I call you names. Oh, okay. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a, are you from Canada? Do I pick up a Canadian accent? Well, 100%, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna hear a lot of a boots uh, <laughs> this conversation. Recording in progress. Hey, and welcome to a, another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, yeah, I know. He's been really loud. he's been really loud this this week. <laughs> hey, this is of course the podcast where Rob forgets his notes. Uh, this is of course the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot. Joining me today, Mr. Steve Barkley. Hey, I get first billing. That's exciting. Oh, shoot, even he noticed. Uh, hey, we've also <laughs> got uh, Miss Liz Malone. In hey, the house. check me out, out of the cellar. <laughs> and Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hey, he's, I'm he's bringing up the important. rear. He's also very important. <laughs> You're not bringing up the rear. You're just. I'm number four. He says with enthusiasm. Woo! Fourth that's mic. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, how the heck is everybody today? Just golly gee dandy. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's hot here, huh? It is. Oh, it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, so down by me, we're entering into an air quality alert issue because of some smoky wildfire mm. action in Canada. Canada. Oh. That's making its way down here. It's reaching it all the way down there. Wow. Yeah, know. we have oh, a really? we have a red we have a red alert tomorrow. They're saying no don't come out if you don't have to. Oh, no you kidding. know that's really interesting. So you get a red alert for for forest fire smoke, but no red alerts for Chinese balloons flying over above. Well, you know, I mean that's, I mean, <laughs> that's <come on>. bizarre. <laughs> I mean, the balloon is only going to harm us if it lands on our house. Well, yeah, actually, that that is was probably a good <laughs> you, possibility, and you considering the route it was on. Hmm, when you, I have and to... you can't sh shoot down smoke. <laughs> true, true. Oh, oh no, uh, it's America. Rob, you're, I wouldn't you're put so it past smart, Rob. <laughs> uh, oh my, is Brooke still right. with us? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm letting, that, I'm Sorry, letting the conversation unfold. Listen, I, uh, <laughs> I think no, we're in New York. We have like a red sky um, around the clock lately, right? There's the old, you know, adage, red sky yeah. in the morning, sailors take warning, right? Whatever the, uh, the other half goes, but it's around the clock. So I don't know if they ever um, anticipated that kind of. <laughs> situation oh you can yeah. thank canada for that listen yeah, I think exactly. is, is, is with that is that the quebec fire steve that you think that is causing that i think that... so yeah it started with the nova scotia one now i think it's quebec oh yeah that's right there's right the nova scotia one too oh man well yeah yeah the local news down here is just calling it canadian wildfires <laughs> oh, really interesting that's a... yeah. <laughs> this is a new phenomenon right? this is a new the new problem well, there's always well, been there's always been forest fires up here, but we've never had them this early and in this volume. It's it's getting worse every single mm -hmm. year. Mm. Uh, I noticed that they they're quick to label smoke Canadian, but uh, yet <laughs> yet media darlings Ryan Reynolds and Michael J. Fox are often overlooked in the fact that they are Canadian gems as well. <laughs> and, and don't forget that Alanis Morissette is secretly Canadian. That's true. Oh, Dude, these are not secrets. I don't think. <laughs> Avril Lavigne, Canadian. That's true. Brian Adams, Canadian. Canadian. One of my favorite Canadians. Yeah, right. Rush, Canadian. Yep. See? Yeah. Nickelback. You can have Oh, exactly. You have to claim responsibility for that one. Not even ownership of responsibility. I think Justin Bieber, too. Right? No, you can oh, have him. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, oh, Justin Bieber. Right. No, yeah. you can't have Nickelback, do. and you Sorry can have Bieber. That one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ryan Gosling kind of makes up for a couple too. <gasps> I forgot. Yeah. See? 
There you go. Yeah, some good Ryan's coming out of the uh, yeah, don't we? (laughs) Oh gosh, Brooke, don't give him a bigger head. That's right. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. He's already got (laughs) swellotosis of the cranium. Swellotosis. Wow. There's that UBC education. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right. Forget, okay, we need to. We need to move on. We need. To, we could just go on all day. I think. I know, about, it's uh, probably. A conversation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Best I show we've ever done. Considered <laughs> myself you know, a uh, self-honored honorary uh, Canadian all my life. Like my brother and I used to play winter games or summer games or world games or something on the computer years and years and years ago sort of like on one of those like apple 2gs computers or commodore 64s and i always did canada was the country that i chose (laughs) every time every time and not to you uh, you consider myself an expat or anything like that but you know like i have i have some affinity for canada well, see, there you go. We so I mean, we can only speak for the AT Banter podcast, but mm-hmm. uh, and not and not Canada on general. But uh, we we welcome you into the fold and make you oh, an honorary Canadian for the next hour. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey Ryan, that's a good segue. Let's uh, tell the fine folks what the heck's going on around here today. Well, I wasn't sure, but I know we had <laughs> I know we had a guest plan for this week, and she's here, so. I'd like to introduce Harvard graduate, champion of persons with disabilities, and author Brooke Ellison to the show. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. See another great Canadian, Ryan. That's right. Just goes on and on. (laughs) Thank Um, you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be a part of the conversation here today. My goodness. Well, thank you so much for for coming on and not uh, leaving immediately upon hearing our, 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 our inane banter. But <laughs> no, it's a pleasure, right? How frequently do I get to be a part of that? Well, summer? well, let's get down to business though, because we we did bring you on. We're, we are really excited to talk uh, to you. Um, you have a really really um, fascinating story, and uh, I'm really you. curious to hear you your perspective on uh, a lot of different topics so but maybe we can just start with um sort of just a, a brief overview and and just sort of briefly share your story and sort of mm-hmm. w- where it's brought to you currently in your life sure absolutely so um i was raised born and raised uh here on long island uh off the east coast of new york city and um i've lived in the same spot for most of my life stony brook uh long island is about uh, an hour and a half east of new york city and my childhood was very reminiscent of i think many childhoods in suburbia i was involved in many um extracurricular activities physical activities that i think come to define childhood um i was you know i was involved in dancing and karate you know martial arts and Little League sports, singing in my church choir. These were the things that gave my life a lot of flavor and character. And it's how I understood my days, really, was going to school and being a part of these different activities. Um, When I was 11 years old, I had just started junior high school. It was actually my very first day of junior high school, way back in September of 1990. And uh, friends and I decided to walk home from school. And in... uh, Doing so, I had to cross a big major highway here on Long Island, and I was hit by a car that was you know, traveling southbound on this you know, major highway. And um, so the accident did extensive damage to my body. I cracked my skull open. I bit off you know, a third of my tongue when I hit the ground, hit the pavement. I, yeah, yeah, just really extensive. I damaged all of my limbs in one way, shape, or form, and uh, emergency responders got to the scene of the accident almost immediately. Actually, my accident happened right outside of a local firehouse, so that was, um, you know, one of the only reasons why I survived my accident to begin with, but they immediately um, started CPR and other kind of resuscitative measures. I was in cardiac and respiratory arrest when uh, they arrived on the scene of the accident, and I was taken immediately to the nearest trauma center here on Long Island, which fortunately was just several hundred feet away 
um, Stony Brook Hospital, and immediately uh, all of these Herculean efforts went into place to save my life. And there was a tremendous amount of question as to whether or not I would survive. Um, my parents, who were called to the hospital you know, almost immediately thereafter, were told that you know, I was in a very severe accident and you know, I suffered um, a significant uh, damage to my head. And if I were to survive the extent of my accident or extent of my injuries at all, that I would likely be significantly cognitively impaired. And you know, that's kind of what my parents were told to expect. And it was very dire in terms of you know, what my prognosis might look like. So I was in... Um, in a coma for 36 hours, uh, and during which time the EEG readings, so the electroencephalogram readings were flat and completely you know, abnormal and not showing any brain activity really at all. Um, but somehow they righted themselves after, you know, after about a day and a half, and I was able to make eye contact with my parents. It was clear that I could recognize their faces, and you know, I understood that something you know, traumatic had happened to me. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I understood that that was the case, and um, I wasn't able to talk. I wasn't able to breathe or move my body. Actually, the sustaining injuries that I have experienced since the time of my accident was an accident done, an injury done to my spinal cord, so a high level spinal cord injury, C2, C3, so the second and third cervical vertebrae on your spine. So it doesn't really get much higher up on the spinal cord than that. And that left me paralyzed from my neck down and on a ventilator to breathe. Now, what was really kind of front and center in my mind, even at that time, and even not knowing what had happened to me or what my future might look like, I was very concerned about making sure that I could return to school. And uh, that was a commitment that my parents made to me very early on after my accident, you know, despite the uh, extent of my injuries and the enormity of them. You know, my parents said, we're going to do all that we can to make sure that you can get back to, your, to school with your friends. And I didn't know what that might look like. I didn't know how long I was going to be in the hospital. I kind of had thought initially that um, you know, I'd be in the hospital maybe for a few weeks. And then by Christmas, I would be you know, walking out of the hospital, you know, out the same entrance that I had walked in. And things would be you know, just fine and just the same as they as they had been. Uh, it didn't take long for me to realize that that was you know, that um, understanding or that vision for my life was not going to come to pass and that um, the injuries that I was dealing with and the disability as a result of them would be a much more permanent kind of thing. And we had to think much differently about how we were going to um, make sure that I could live my life as fully as I wanted to. So my parents kind of made it an a, um, additional quest to make sure that I could return to school and be with my friends and be um, accepted into my community. Yeah, fortunately, there were many people who were very dedicated to my returning home and felt a tremendous amount of community support and making sure that I was um, you know, a vital part of the community. But at the same time, there was, there was resistance to my returning to school. There were some people who thought that my presence in the classroom was going to be disruptive or uh, upsetting in some way to my fellow students. So we had to overcome a bit of resistance to what my parents thought was going to be a pretty simple thing to return to get me to, to go back to school. But we fought and we prevailed. And yeah, fortunately, despite many of the changes that my family had to make to how it operated, you know, first and foremost, my mother's first day as a special education teacher was also the day of my accident. So she had to make a decision very quickly to leave her position, leave her new job and you know, be with me to help care for me and make sure that I could do the things that I wanted to do, um, you know, and live my life as richly and fully as, as um, everybody was hoping I could. So you know, we did that. I went to junior high school and high school. We went together, actually. And then you know, ultimately, I was accepted to Harvard, where I did my undergraduate degree and then ultimately my master's degree. And 
with other things kind of thrown in the mix there. I uh, did my PhD in sociology of science, and now I am, among other things, a professor of applied medical ethics at Stony Brook University, um, teaching students about medical ethical questions that is many of which you know, my life has almost revolved around. And then I also serve as the vice president for technology and innovation for uh, the organization United Spinal um, to bring technology to the lives of people who can benefit from it the most. And that's what I do, and it keeps me extremely busy. Well, yes, and you're, and we have to mention in there as well is that you also wrote a book. Okay. Um, called Miracles Happen in, uh, what year was it, 20, 2002, I believe? 2002, exactly, exactly, right. which, yeah, feels like a, you know, um, a very long time ago. Uh, so I graduated from college, from Harvard, uh, the first time in 2000, and there was a lot of uh, attention, media attention, that was directed towards my graduation. And uh, after that, there was a lot of interest in me, you know, telling my story or writing a book and, you know, collecting my thoughts and, and sharing it. Um, so that's what me and my family and I did uh, the year and plus, I guess, uh, after I graduated from college. Uh, so, yeah, we wrote Miracles Happen. Uh, my mother and I wrote it together with the input of other family members, kind of chronicling our experience from the time of my accident to 10 years later when I graduated um, Harvard. And actually that book was then made into a movie uh, directed by Christopher Reeve, uh, The Brooke Ellison Story. So it's a very important book and one that um, captures, I think, a really pristine time in my family's life. I just have to point something out that I don't think we've had any other guest who could say, when I gra graduated from Harvard the first time, <laughs> like that's just, <laughs> that is just, Awesome. I mean, amazing on its own with that, you know, and then writing and then writing and doing everything else. It's it what it what it, it I don't even like I'm kind of speechless because you make it sound so easy. And I believe me, I know it's not. But the just hearing like in listening, I'm like, oh, my God, like, just am I the only one who's like, oh my God, like, oh my, oh, oh my, oh my, oh my, <laughs> like, I, I, it's, it's no surprise that it was made into a movie. Well, I mean, it just reads you. like one. It's a, it's a, it's such a, an, an amazing story. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you know, sometimes um, when you live in it, in the thick of the, the story, right, it's hard to see its significance. I think clearly uh, sometimes I can forget that it is a very special and unique life, right? It is uh, um, a set of circumstances that I think very few people have the opportunity to be a part of, you know, not necessarily for their own, you know, because of their own you know, lives, but because of you know, circumstances in society and how society has organized itself and prioritized certain people over others. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have been able to experience things that I've experienced and to, like, it, it took me a long time after my accident to understand that my disability was not going to be a detriment to me, right? There were obviously physical limitations that I experienced and continue to experience, right? There are comorbidities that go along with um spinal cord injury that have made challenged my life in really significant ways. But because of my life lived with disability, I've become a much stronger and more resilient and more creative and tenacious person. And I never would have understood that about myself you know, at the time of my accident, even many years thereafter. So I feel very privileged to be able to look at my life from this vantage point and understand it for all that it has given me and all the opportunities that I have been able to take advantage of as a result of it. Yeah, I find it really interesting when we, we talk about disability because you know, so often we we always paint this, or I shouldn't say we. I, when I say we, I guess I'm, I'm just talking about society in general. Mm -hmm. It's it's painted as sort of a, a very sort of negative experience, 
And yes, there certainly are aspects to that, but it's also a transformative experience. And there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's positives being brought in along with the negatives. You know, we've talked to so many people on the podcast who, you know, have gone through their, their disability journey and, you know, they, they, there, there definitely are positive things that it's brought into their life, whether that mm -hmm. be opportunities that they never would have had otherwise, or it's to put, taken them down a, a route that they never dreamed of um, prior. So, you know, I, I think that, and I think that that's important. That's an important thing to talk about when we talk about mm -hmm. disability is the fact that it's, it, it can be transformative in a multitude of different ways. No question about that. And that is the message that I have been you know, trying to espouse the drum that I've been trying to beat for years and years now that, uh, and this is, was very much the case for me, right? That um, after my accident, I was the product of as much social indoctrination as anybody else, believing that disability was this completely categorical net negative in somebody's life, the people with disabilities are the ones to be pitied or felt sorry for, and the ones that are not going to be able to participate in the world or make a difference in any real way, right? Like that was just what I understood. It was the, the logical um, conclusion that I was drawing about in my life, but I was not satisfied with that. You know, I, I wanted to do more than what I thought society was telling me I would be able to do. Um, and I'm very thankful that I didn't buy into that for very long. And you know, in the years, since you know, I think many people with who live with disability um, also go through this kind of um, almost like a coming out process, right, or a social transformation where the um, social constructs or social um, limitations that are put on the disabled life become um, unnecessary barriers and unnecessary impediments in our in our thinking and we can be viewed instead for the virtues or the kind of the knowledge set or the skill set the disability actually does engender in a person right and that's something that I feel very very strongly about that were it not for the disability that I have faced I don't think I ever would have understood myself or be really be forced to understand myself in terms of these really important strengths right whether it's um you know the ability to navigate a world that's fundamentally not set up for you or having to implement your creativity and hopefulness into your life on a daily basis in order to just deal with life's changes right these things i think are really important valuable skills that any organization any family any community benefits greatly from and you know, people with disabilities sh should be understood in those terms right we shouldn't be talking about disability without also thinking about all the virtues that it creates not only for the individual living with disability but for everybody around him or her yeah, and do you find that that is some of the sort of the more challenging aspects when you when you talk to people and you're trying to educate them is that because we're very used to as a society looking at disability a very specific way hmm. and sometimes shifting the way that we look at something is like the most challenging and I would think that that people I, I, I and I guess I'll ask the question do people sort of get uncomfortable when you when you try to sort of shift their perspective and to look at it in a more positive way absolutely no question about it and that I think is is as you mentioned right the most difficult part of all of this right you can legislate in any number of ways right we in the states here we have the you know, the, the ADA the Americans with Disabilities Act and that was a really important um landmark piece of civil rights legislation uh, to shift the thinking about how, who could be included in the workplace and in the educational setting and just the community in, in general. Um, but at the same time, it's taken from this vantage point of compliance, right? Like what are the standards that we need to enact so that um, somebody is not going to be challenged or held liable for being inaccessible or, or not providing accommodations rather than looking at the question entirely differently. Like how, how does inclusion of people with disabilities actually benefit everyone? How does a society become better and stronger because of its inclusion of people with disabilities? Like that is how we should really be looking at the conversation. Um, and I think those are conversations that are not being had 
to the degree that they ought to be having. And like, that's the message that I try to send every single place that I go. It should not be unusual to see somebody with a disability in any legislative body or any decision-making body. It should be perfectly normal, perfectly expected. Yeah. And not, I mean, and not only that, I mean, I would argue essential, like a really, if we're, if we're going to, you know, drive the issues forward, um, we really need um, people with disabilities involved in the mm-hmm. system because a lot of the problems that we're facing, they're, they're systemic. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And society is so used to thinking that way. Right. So the um, disability, as I'm sure you guys know, as well as I do, has largely been contextualized in many different frameworks right so the you know the moral model of disability understanding you basically understanding disability to be some kind of uh you know, curse or consequence you have had to accept by wrongdoing in the past right so people you think along those lines all the time we still have vestiges of that to this day people who encounter some kind of injury or um disabling accidents feel like you know why do i deserve this why did this happen to me what did i do to deserve this right so there's kind of this morality component to disability right and then there's the economic model right that people with disabilities are some kind of social charge or public charge they cost too much money and they don't give back to society they don't work they're not economically productive and you know they can't work so they shouldn't be thought of as you know valuable members of society right so there's the economic model of disability and there's the the medical model of disability which has been probably one of the most consequential and longest lasting and most influential when it comes to how people with disabilities and how they've been understood right assuming them to be um medical problems that need to be fixed and and you um uh, I guess products of a medical system that has not fixed them in any real way. So kind of these aberrations in the world when we really need to be thinking in a much more socially constructed understanding of disability that takes into consideration how the world operates that can either further disable or conceivably enable an individual and that comes to bear in the policies that we enact the kinds of um you know social services that we put into place and the environments that we build and the technology that we innovate all of these things um are society's responsibility to help make sure that people with disabilities can be as fully included as fully engaged in the world as possible and when we understand disability in that sense i think is entirely different right it's not it's not just the problem of the individual or there were some kind of um you know uh weakness or vulnerability within the individual but a a um a, a consequence of society's entire ability or lack thereof to um, make somebody a part of the of the world and give them the tools that they need to participate. You know, the real kick in the pants too is that, and we've said this before on the podcast multiple times, you know, the disability community is a very unique community in the sense that anybody can enter into it at any time. And mm-hmm. chances are pretty good that um, and somebody in the course of their of their life from childhood to old age they're going to enter into that community either temporarily or permanently at Mm -hmm. some point there's a really good chance so really that's right there that's the selling point in terms of how making our society more accessible and have a, a a more open response to to disability itself is going to benefit everybody absolutely absolutely yeah right so I'm sure you've talked about the statistic in the past, right? That that, that um, the disabled population is you know the largest minority population yeah. in the world, right? So 15% of the population um, worldwide, and uh, growing, um, growing really at a rapid pace. Whether that's the result of an aging population or um, people living with the consequences of of COVID, long COVID, um, you know, mental health challenges that have existed as a result of COVID, right? All of these things um, are changing the nature of our demographic or demography in significant ways. Um, but because society has not looked at disability from this vantage point and has understood it really only in terms of its deficits, it makes people afraid of disability, it makes people afraid of others with disabilities, it makes them afraid of themselves acquiring a disability. And I think that that's not um, 
a vantage point or not a perspective that's healthy for anyone to have this really big population, like you said, where people can come in and out at any point in their lifespan. Like that shouldn't be a terrifying prospect because we could build a society where the kinds of things that people fear, whether it's a, a loss of a job or loss of a relationship or loss of the ability to live in the community with their friends and family, like those should not be the logical consequences of experiencing a disability. And that's completely fixable, right? That's completely a society's responsibility to try to address so that when it comes to somebody possibly living or experiencing disability, they're not terrified about it. You know, people look at disability as either people are either helpless or they're heroes. That's generally the two right. perspectives that mainstream sort of see disability mm -hmm. as. The whole idea of inspiration porn. People come up to you, I'm sure, all the time and tell you how much of an inspiration you are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I heard you speak um, recently and I thought you brought up a really good point that I hadn't thought of. But you talk about how, well, that's really well-intentioned and yes, it can feel patronizing or condescending. The real danger, though, is that that allows people to kind of stop there. Like they feel like they've recognized that you're an inspiration. They've done their part for disability and they sort of stop there and they don't really think about what they can do to actually help the situation. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Exactly right. I think that you know, that's exactly exactly the point. And even how you characterize that as you as people with disabilities as being either helpless or heroes, right? It, um, so I have a nephew who lives down down the street and um, down the street from my house, and you know, he and his brother you dress up as superheroes, right, all the time, right? They want to be those heroes, but when it comes to disability, right, you consider consider somebody a hero, but you don't really want any part of it, right? You want to hold the to hit the heroism at arm's length, right? Don't let me get too close to it. It's not something that I really, really think of as a hero because you know, otherwise I'd want to emulate that or have that part of as part of my life. And I think that's often kind of in this in the same vein that when people say, um, if people come up to me very frequently and say, you know, um, you know, your your life is so inspiring, you're such an inspiration, or um uh, you know, that I could never do the things that you do. And I understand the motivation behind that. I understand that people want to pay some kind of compliment or offer some kind of acknowledgement that what the life that I have lived is difficult, right? It's more difficult than other people's lives for whatever reason, right? They don't necessarily go any deeper to understand why that's the case, right? They, they see circumstances that are different and, you know, by many standards, more difficult and they just want to acknowledge that. But without thinking about you know, anything beyond that, like why is it more difficult? What role could I play in possibly making things less difficult? Is saying that you know you're an inspiration and you know patting me on the head or you know um, you know giving me their phone number or whatever is that is that enough and actually trying to make the world different for me I I I don't think so I think we all as a society have a role to play in trying to mitigate mitigating trying to mitigate the um, the level of difficulty that other people experience and by just saying you know your life is interesting, your life is difficult, and I recognize that. I don't think that that's enough because we, in order for the, the real kind of social change and social movements to actually take place, um, it requires going to require everybody, no matter where they are in this overall spectrum of ability to disability. And that reminds me of uh, when we had done an episode, and uh, and Sean from from Blind Beginnings, which is the organization that Rob is uh, is associated with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, she she had made the comment that you know find the fact that I started a nonprofit that's the inspiration. It's not right. you know like my dis my disability. Food. Right, exactly. And like I mean, and, I mean, and you went to Harvard again twice I mean that it has nothing to do with uh with with your disability because that is just a remarkable feat uh, on its own um and I I wanted to add, just get your thought about you know the when you brought up the different models of uh of or schools of thought of dis when it comes to disability I mean one of the the biggest challenges is that we what we've talked about on this show is that the various schools of thought um also apply to the 
the members of our community where there's so much disagreement and I mean many people in the disability community who do subscribe to the uh, the medical model and they want to be fixed mm-hmm. and they want sure. to um, and uh, and you know I, I think we've all encountered the situations where sometimes even myself as a member of, uh, of the blind community get pulled in multiple directions where on one hand it's yes accessibility yes inclusion and then someone else is whispering near oh but no but we need you to speak because we need to raise money and we need to fund <laughs> research because we're gonna fix you you know mm-hmm. and so I, I was just curious what your what your thoughts are when it, when it comes to those those mm-hmm. sort of converging circles of, 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 of influence absolutely absolutely this is something that I've struggled with mightily for years and years and years because I have I fall on all sides of this, right? And there, there are many years that I have been um, uh, ridiculed or um, called into question for perspectives I have, very strong perspectives I have in stem cell research advocacy and finding treatments and therapies to um, disease and conditions. Like that has been work that I have championed and proudly so for a very, very long time. So I, so I understand the importance of that work. Um, what I come down on is that there shouldn't be really any um, perspective that, that people should feel ashamed of, right? That they shouldn't feel like um, they are not living up to some standard or some ideological perspective because they feel like possibly they would rather not live with disability than live with it, right? Like I couldn't say really that there's a day that goes by where living with disability would be my fir- preferred choice, right? There are um, physical consequences that I have experienced or physical changes in my life that make my life much more difficult, right? The fact that I'm on a ventilator and um, should I become disconnected from my ventilator, I would die, right? Like that is a constant fear that I live with. Um, I can't breathe on my own at all. So it's, it's, it's constantly nagging in my back, in the back of my mind. And like, it would be um, quite incredible to live a day or, you know, an hour of a day or a minute of a day without having to think about that. Or when I have to get, you know, my lungs suctioned, you know, in the course of a day or having to uh, you um, grapple with the physical spasms that I have in the course of a day. Like all of these things are things that I would prefer not to live with. Um, to not have to deal with on on a regular basis. And that does not in any way minimize the worth that I ascribe to my life, right? And I think that that is a really important distinction that people's desire to not necessarily live with some of the challenges that disability creates is not the same thing as saying that they don't believe these lives ought to exist or that there's not value to be found in them. I can say without any hesitation or equivocation that my life lived with disabilities is a much more significant and important life than it, my life really ever would have been had I not lived with disability. And I can, I can say that without a second's hesitation. And I know that to be true. And that's such a powerful message and, and something that is so counter to sort of the narrative of disability. And mm-hmm. those are the messages that I feel like that's what we need to get out there. People need to look at disability differently so that we can change it. Because mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, trying to to legislate change, you know, that's not really going to move the needle. It's we, we need to really get in there and figure out the, the systemic changes and stuff. And mm-hmm. um, and I want I want to get your opinion, because something that we also haven't mentioned is that you also have had an experience in the political system. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about about your experience with politics. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I just want to touch on that point that you just raised. Around. Like, so none of these arguments are simple, right? None of these uh, debates are black or white, right? It's They're very nuanced. And unless you take the time to really think them through, you could possibly legislate or, or policy make in a way that I think is not necessarily um, as thoughtful as it could be, right? And so we need to have these conversations. We need to be talking about things in all of their sides, right? All of their facets and, you know, kind of granular details, because otherwise we just, you know, use broad brush strokes for really important things that I think deserve more consideration than that. So yeah, so when I kind of glossed over this before, um, so when I 
what is it, uh, the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, I was there from 2002 to 2004, and that was probably one of the most transformative experiences um, that I ever could have imagined. Um, I took a class there on leadership, and you're not like, you know, who's going to run to the top of the mountain and get everybody to, you know, to follow, but leadership has an exercise, as an understanding of the kinds of challenges that, this, that society or communities face, and how to mobilize people to think about those challenges and you know, work collectively to address them, um, challenging their own biases, understanding the roles that they play or could conceive play that possibly they don't when it comes to making things better for the greatest number of people. So that class was completely uh, motivating and inspiring to me. It was actually in that class that I really gained my voice in terms of things that I could be a part of, conversations that I ought to be a part of and uh, could have opinions on, you know, in ways that I never thought of before. Like I was always a bit of an introverted kind of quiet or meek person, you know, not really ever thinking that I could have my own opinions or really, you know, take, take them you know, to, the, to the center stage. But that cl class taught me otherwise. So when I graduated from the Kennedy School, I came back to Long Island and started a PhD program in political psychology, which was you know immensely interesting, you know, just fascinating, and you dealing with a lot of the questions that the United States is facing right now in terms of political ideology and what it means and you know how people become tied to it and all these really you know complex questions. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get my hands a little bit dirtier, right? Especially coming out of that class. So um, I had met with my local state senator. Um, he was giving me an award, uh, like a woman achievement award or something. And um, we had a conversation. He asked me, you know, what issues he should be talking about up in Albany um, that were of significance to me. And I don't know what he was expecting me to say, but I mentioned the importance of stem cell research and embryonic stem cell research and how, um, you know, at that time here in the U.S., there were many restrictions being put on um, biomedical research, stem cell research in particular, and, and different states, most notably Canada, I'm sorry, California, um, was, you know, were taking it upon themselves to enact state-based funding initiatives to fund this really important work. And I said, you know, I think New York should be on the forefront of this. You know, New York is, is a hotbed of scientific and um, activity and brilliance and why shouldn't New York be you know at, at the helm of these kinds of questions so uh my state senator said you know well I don't really know much about the topic I'll do some research and get back to you and he never did so I said okay well that's not a person I want representing me so let me try to take your job uh, away from you so I was only 26 years old at the time and, you know, like fresh out of graduate school, but with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and um, optimism and you know, hope for how things could conceivably be done differently. So I ran a state Senate campaign uh, in a district that was a two to one um, Republican majority. So I was running as a Democrat. But it generated a tremendous amount of attention. It was I was endorsed by the New York Times. Uh, the um, Today Show did a um, a feature article, a feature story on my campaign. Uh, it was really an incredible experience, and I talked about things that I thought were of tremendous importance to me, and could gain some kind of uh, position on whether it was access to affordable housing or healthcare or. Uh, environmental protections and education for kids, right? All of these things that are deeply embedded in who I am and how I think the world can be um, improved upon. Uh, so yeah, so I, I did that in 2006 and um, it was a tremendous uh, experience. One that didn't ultimately go in my favor, but um, I learned an immense amount from. And the, you know, one of the issues that brought me into the race to begin with, you know, the, the state funding for stem cell research you know, ultimately got enacted uh, here in New York. The, um, the incoming governor put together a stem cell research initiative, and I ultimately ended up uh, serving on one of the committees of this board, uh, the uh, Ethics Committee of the Empire State Stem Cell Board. And so I got to be a part of that even though I wasn't you know, elected to office. So I was really very appreciative of that.
See, I, I love that story because really, I, I feel like that's the template that a lot of people need to follow. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, honestly, because mm -hmm. this is, you know, it, part of, I, I think the strategy, the winning strategy anyways, to really affect change is also a little bit of like trying to affect change from within, getting, yeah. getting people with disability into the system to, mm -hmm. to address that. I, I it, It's really ironic because I feel like we have a few examples of how a personal a close personal relationship with disability can really affect uh an organization uh or a, or a system it, mm -hmm. you know in the, in the case of what we're talking about and i think that a really interesting example of this is microsoft um you know mm -hmm. right now we've got we've got uh, the microsoft ceo uh what's his name ryan satya nadella Yes, right. So right, he so he he lost his son uh, recently to to, right. to uh, cerebral palsy, but you know he brought his that sort of uh, I don't know empathy his his perspective on disability. He really changed Microsoft the corporate culture um, mm -hmm. when he's been uh, as he's been CEO, and really brought with it. Um, not only not only a change in the in the in the organization but just more of a inclusive and accessible and diverse uh, corporate culture so we're seeing corporations sort of becoming thought leaders um in these topics especially when they have this close personal relationship with disability mm -hmm. so i feel like that could sort of work in uh, in so something like a political system no question about it. Absolutely. And you shouldn't come down to that, right? It shouldn't take direct uh, experience with somebody with a disability to care about it. But you're absolutely, absolutely right. We need that much, you know, much more prevalently, right? Like you, any organization can be the testing ground for these kinds of um, initiatives, right? But one, one thing that's commonly asked of me is like, what can I, as your know, individual ex in the community or wherever, do to, you know, to help to help you move um, accessibility or disability inclusion forward. And that's exactly how, right? So everybody, not everybody uh, lives with a disability. You know, most people, but not everyone, will uh, have a family member or a friend who will experience disability. But everybody, almost everybody, is a part of a network or a part of an organization or a part of a community with a culture. So be Local in in those settings, right? Reopen a door for somebody with a disability, both you know, literally and figuratively, to, to make them you know part of the group, welcomed and you know share sharing their experiences and and you know not a an aberration or you know something that you you see in the wild, you know, in a very um, you know isolated and rare situation but people who are deeply embedded and in, and in integrated into their communities right that is how social change happens you know with um you know with like as a as a contagion right people understanding that people with disabilities are valuable and not to be feared and actually can can offer really important insights and the society is a better a better product as a result so are you saying we can't use a big stick Really? Yeah, you, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> that Damn, I've been saying a big stick for years. <laughs> I've been I mean, wrong. It'd be nice. It'd be nice if that was a solution. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got some sticks. <laughs> yeah, generally, generally doesn't work. It, in the history, it's, it's hitting people with sticks. <laughs> Make a game out. out of it. Whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. Right, exactly. <laughs> But it's hard. It's hard. Like I don't want to minimize the uh, difficulty in that. Right? It is hard, sure. especially sure. when you live with with disability. Right? It's it's getting through the day can be difficult. Right? It it, it can be burdensome and exhausting to feel like you have to take on the world every single day. Right? It yeah. shouldn't be that way. Sometimes it is. Sometimes some, you know, certain days you have more resilience and and willpower than you do on other days. But like it's a really important fight. And unless it gets uh, fought or inroads are made to get into it getting fought, then it, things are just going to perpetuate themselves. Right. Well, I do want to talk about, about the new book, uh, Look yeah. Both Ways. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about, about what, what prompted you to write the second book and kind of, I don't know, like how is it different than that first book? 
Sure, sure. So, um, you know, like we, we talked about, um, Miracles Happen was published in 2002. So, you know, quite a number of years ago, 20 years ago at the time of Look Both Ways, you know, publishing. Um, and all throughout those two decades, I knew that I wanted to write another book. I knew that I had at least another book in me and more I wanted to write about or to share, um, but I wasn't quite sure what um, what it was going to look like. If it was just going to be a continuation of the chronicling of my life or if it was going to be something different. I wasn't really sure. And so I was kind of dragging my feet with it. I was not taking it as seriously as I think I could have or should have. Um, but it was around my 40th birthday, I became very sick. I developed a pressure ulcer, um, which is you know, a problem that is uh, you know, a real risk factor to many people who live with paralysis you know, from sitting in one position for so long. I developed a um, you know, pressure ulcer and it became very, uh, very infected with all sorts of infections that put my life you know, in, in question, um, it was treated, you know, fortunately, and you know, I was you know, treated with round after round of IV antibiotics, um, but I was very close to you know, losing my life as a result of this. Um, so that summer, this, you know, my birthday was in October of 2018 at the time, um, and then that entire year up until uh April of the following year, I was being treated off and on. And then that summer, the summer of 2019, I said to myself, okay, Brooke, you need to get serious, right? This, just this experience, this health scare needs to, ought to tell you that you have to, you know, there's things that are important for people to know about you and about your experiences and the tremendous lessons that you've learned in your life, the depth of your experiences that you need to get on paper. So that summer, I you know, locked myself away in my bedroom and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I wouldn't let myself, you know, experience a day without writing at least, you know, a couple of paragraphs. And uh, just that summer, I put together what was and is one of the biggest accomplishments I ever, I ever did. Um, uh, this book, Look Both Ways, is tremendously important to me, um, deeply personal. Uh, so not so it starts with you know, some uh, background in terms of you know, my accident and what happened to me. And then I delve into really difficult questions that people with disabilities experience, you know, how to um, you know, navigate the world, especially you know, somebody with um, ventilator-dependent quadriplegia, like how do you incorporate technology into your life? And then I talk about you know, what it means to be uh, the disabled individual in a family and how difficult that was and what that meant to my sense of identity and how I misunderstood my family members' roles in my life and what kinds of things they were dealing with and grappling with at that time um, and how I've been approached by other families who experienced similar circumstances and kinds of advice that I've given them. And then I talked about instances of infantilization and invisibility that I think is very common among people with disabilities. Uh, and then uh, I kind of turn things around and look at the virtues of disability, the kinds of really important strengths that I've gained and lessons I've learned that are essential to who I am right now and have made me, um, you know, a stronger and more vibrant and more accepting and, you know, all around better person, I think, and how you need to look at both the difficult times in your life and the strengths that come out of that in order to fully understand who you are. So the title really is a recognition of that, right? The look both ways could be understood as like, you know, the the um, the advice to you know, before crossing a road, right? Obviously, that's kind of the obvious um, interpretation that people might have, but it's much deeper than that. And we need to really look at all parts of our lives in order to understand the beauty of them. I just feel like I, I could talk to you all day. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll have to you. do a part two. Yeah, no, we would yes. we would absolutely love to have you back because there's so many things. I have ethics questions. I have I have questions up the wazoo. Okay, um, I would be delighted to come back. Awesome. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for for coming coming on for round one. Where can but, people find out more information? Yeah. Um, great. Absolutely. Well, I have my, my website is kind of the, the hub for a lot of this. So it's brookellison.com. So B R O O K E. 
E-L-L-I-S-O-N.com. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter, just uh, at Brooke M. Ellison. Um, there's places to reach out to me on my website. Um, and then also on Instagram uh, and Twitter uh, or Facebook. Um, and yes, you know, like my book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And, you know, I, I think that it is one of the most important things I've ever done. So I think people who are interested about interested in knowing more about me would gain a lot from from reading that. And we'll be sure to actually include that in the show notes. So anyone listening, uh, just go to the show notes and we will include the Amazon link to that. Well, thank you. Well, thank you so much again. Best of luck with everything. And thank you uh, so much, please everybody. come back anytime. Oh, it'd be a delight to do that. I really enjoyed the conversation thoroughly. And uh, I, I admire the work that you do. Oh, thank you. And we'll practicing a boots. <laughs> That's right. Until you come yeah, back, exactly. If I'm really going to be an honorary Canadian, I Yeah, we'll send you the Canadian Dictionary. Okay, okay, good, good. I don't like that. And I'll work on my, you know, maple syrup. Uh, and testing. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Brooke. you so much. Enjoy your evening, guys. Thanks, you Thank as well. Thank you. Great to meet you, Brooke. You too. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, once again, feeling like an underachiever. I know. We, we, uh... I, I'm going to need a little. Uh... <laughs> yeah, how many times do you go to Harvard there, Liz? Harvard? Harvard? Zero. I've never been to Harvard. <laughs> that's oh, that's, that's why I graduated from Harvard. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going to start a school called Harvard. I went to Harvard for three people. times. How about you? I just sell diplomas so that people, you can, you can tell them you were, you, were, you graduated from Harvard. I'm Harvard educated. Oh nice. I don't even think they'll let me on the campus. <laughs> I, yeah, because there's Harvard, there's Yale. What's the other big one? Princeton, Stanford. Oh, yeah. That was a few. Yeah. Mm. Well, there you go. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Look out, Harvard. <laughs> We're coming. We can make up T-shirts. <laughs> Just rip off the logo. Make it look real similar. <laughs> One of those Harvard, Harvard, Harvard knockoff schools. Harvard. Harvard. <laughs> uh, is yeah. that a cheese? <laughs> Harvardy. <laughs> Just say that really fast. Where'd you go? Harvardy. Uh, Harvardy. Harvardy. I tell you. No, that was fun. That was such an interesting conversation. I love it. I love her perspective on things. Yeah, and I don't know if the movie's still out there. I know my wife and I had watched the movie, the Brooke oh, Ellison really? story, years ago. Yeah, it's oh, been years. And I don't even think it had audio description, or if it does, it might now. But it, it was really now. good. And, you know, I haven't looked at the books, but I'm sure they're available from our online libraries as well. Yep. Yeah. So we'll yeah, I'm that. totally going to read. I'm going to read uh, Look Both Ways um, for sure. So I encourage everybody out there to do the same. I'm sure they have an audiobook. It's probably a Kindle version. There's Kindle and hard hardcover. No audio? I don't see an I bet audio. you it's on Bookshare. Mm. At least not on Amazon. I don't see it through Fair. like Audible, but Right. Yeah, it it uh it makes you think and you know, I I'm sure she has so many interesting things to say about ethics because ethics really does tie into all of this as well. Oh, there's the ethics discussion. There's the whole MAID, the medical assisted suicide that they're they're offering to persons with disabilities oh, now. Yeah, we just no, don't we feel they can go on, on anymore. Like, oh yeah, there's a whole oh, lot more we terrible. can be talking about. Wow. It is terrible. Yeah. Absolutely. But it comes down to personal choice, right? Who are we to decide? You know, and especially, you know, even with something like stem cell research, because I don't, you know, it, back in whatever it was, it would have been the late nineties or whatever. That was a whole there was big a conversation. And there was, there was a, a lot of controversy about that. Yeah. People didn't think that we should be doing it. Um, yeah. And, you know, that directly impacted a lot of research that, um, that was being done. And, and probably did impact it for years. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that things are better now, but uh, it definitely slowed things down. Um, lots, of, lots of really interesting conversations. So we'll definitely have to have her back. Indeed. So there you go. There you good, go. Good guest. 
Yay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't even know who. No, we, look, we all, I mean, we have, we, we have a lot of great guests, so I don't want to sound like, but no, but that was, that was and just I like a, all those other losers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. JK, JK. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, no, her press people reached out to us. Yeah, it's always a good sign when our guest has a press person. Yep. Because Liz is our press yeah, if person. If only we could find one. <laughs> Liz, Liz is our press person. If I ever have to, if I ever decide to get interviewed, I'm going to just direct them to Liz. I have her email. She'd be like, yeah, no, just talk to, talk to my press person, Liz. I have her email too, but she never replies. <laughs> so she's either really, really wow. busy or I just don't go. pay her enough. Yeah, that could be it too. You could get return emails are based on a sliding scale. Okay. So let's see. Let's do the math on the zero. Zero equals uh, delete. Zero. Zero equals a block. <laughs> Mark as spam. <laughs> Where is I haven't heard from Ryan. Oh, I haven't checked my junk folder in a while. <laughs> there he is. All fifty of them. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Everybody ready to go? Yep, dinner time. All hey. right. Food. Let's get let's get out of here. Uh hey, Liz. Rob. Where can people find us? Uh, and the checks can... in the mail. Oh, please. I've heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, aside from the check, uh, we can be found at atbanter.com. Hey, they can drop us an email if they so desire at a cowbell at atbanter.com. Yeah, I guess, should we, I guess you forgot. You, I didn't do the trigger warning. Yeah, I have to do that. I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. I, I made fun of that initially, but now I'm like, oh, maybe we should because that was. But loud. you don't know, so it's probably not a bad idea to put it at the beginning of every show. Yeah. I think well, the rest oh, wait, of us need the, the trigger warning. <laughs> or just a volume warning. Sometimes well, that baby's loud. It shouldn't be. Well, it shouldn't be a whole lot louder other than my voice, other than the pitch of the bell, and the I, bell is still like it's, it's low. It, it's the height of my chair. And the microphone's mm. like a foot away from my head. I think yeah, you just need to. I, I think you gave it a real solid, extra solid thwang. No. At the, uh, no. I think, I think you just got to. Here's a solid it. thwang. <laughs> yeah, see, it was louder than that, the first one. It was, really? It was much, yeah, it was much louder. Nah. That's, that <laughs> was yeah, the think, first one. I think Ryan just needs to practice. I, I, he needs to practice more. You just need to spend a couple hours every night down there just like. Yeah, it's volume. It's it's about pressure and knowing how hard to hit it. Yeah, think, see, look you, at that. There's a big difference, right? You think his you think his neighbors are sitting there? There's that goddamn cow out there. <laughs> that's all I'm trying. That's all I'm trying to do is drive his wife and his neighbors crazy. Uh, if it's not that, it's guitar sounds. So. Boom, boom. Yeah. Oh, oh, Daisy wants to get in on this. See, there you go. You've disturbed Daisy now. Nice going. Anyways, Daisy, what do you have to say? What? What? Daisy, Daisy, who's that? <laughs> I just tried to put the head headphones on her, and that completely disarmed her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the sweet sound of thousands of people of unsubscribing to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, then they hit the cowbell for five minutes. <laughs> it was the show is going so well, too. Uh, where, and then they put the headphones on somebody's dog. It was just, it was just, <laughs> what kind of podcast is this? Uh, what, uh, what do we do? We did email. Hey, where can people, other places that people can find us? Well, I heard that, that we've got some sort of social media stuff, but yeah, maybe oh, yeah. people should just kind of look around. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, especially Instagram or uh, Facebook, perhaps. Yeah, that, that, that would probably be that's a good place to start. Yeah. 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 Hey, so can I just say too, and I'm going to tickle the audience with a feather a little bit and uh, give you guys a heads up. But uh, yeah, we got some we got some plans going on for the the anniversary shoe. 
uh, in a couple of weeks. So expect expect an email soon. I'll uh, give you I, all the details. I will, I will wait with bated breath. So check your spam folder. No, seriously, I'll, I'll eat like herring or something. <laughs> Don't hold your breath, though. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I just got that. What, the bated I, breath? Yeah, I did. I did that. I just got that. Let's go sports. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Is fishing a sport? Bait. Yeah, it is. Kind of a sport. I know about as much about fishing. Uh, but wait, you catch, you catch fish with other fish? You can, that, yes. That, oh, is, that is a traditional way of doing it, yes. <laughs> Monsters eat each other. Cannibals. Who knew? Cannibal fish. <laughs> well, oh, listen. You've, we've learned a lot today. You're a say. treat, Rob. Yeah. Well, you're precious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is gone. Oh goodness. All right. <clears throat> Are we ready to go? Yep. Let's go. Yeah. All right. Three. Hey. Two. Well, that is going to about do it for this week. Uh, big thanks, of course, to Brooke for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com.